when I was a bodybuilder, I was I was focused on being the best bodybuilder in the world, and that was my focus. And now um, it's different. Right now, like I said, at some point in your life, you become aware of your own mortality, and you shift your focus from this thing that's very vain, that's very external. And for me, it wasn't even about vanity at all. As much as that sounds ironic, it was all about like I want to prove to myself and I want to prove to the world that I can do this. Um, so now the shift is like, okay, well, now I just want to live the highest quality life and um, much less muscle-centric, right? Much less focus on building muscle. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's episode is a special episode because it's recorded live and on video as well as audio here at Bulletproof Labs Alpha or Upgrade Labs Alpha, I guess you could call it, on Vancouver Island. Today's cool fact of the day is that lead performs under pressure and lead is relatively soft and you can scratch it with a fingernail or poison yourself and give yourself an increased risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease with it. But when you take lead and you smash it under really extreme pressures, it becomes hard and strong, in fact, stronger than steel. And scientists rapidly compressed a lead sample by hitting it with lasers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Side note, I almost went to work at Lawrence Livermore many, many years ago. And the pressure within their sample reached 400 gigapascals, which is one of my personal goals is to reach 400 gigapascals, basically the same level of pressure as the Earth's core. And they found that it altered the lead's crystal structure, which rearranged its lattice of atoms, and it became a stronger metal permanently. So understanding how substances change in response to incredible pressure matters for things like bulletproof vests. And why should you care about lead and bulletproof vests? Well, number one, it says bulletproof, so it's got to be cool. But number two, the strength of a material characterizes how it responds to stress and stress is just force applied over a given area and the more stress you can endure before you deform the stronger you are so it's just a metaphor for resilience and if you want to know how resilient you are you can either be hard or you can be malleable and either one is a form of resilience which is all built into the way that you can think about being a better human being and hacking yourself for sure Relatively affordable version, and the here's what crazy people are doing today that will come down in price over the next decade. It's all spelled out in a framework you can understand. It's readable, and a lot of people have now told me, Dave, it's my favorite book so far, and to me, that's really high praise, and I'm grateful if you're one of the people who said that. If you pick up your copy of the book or forward your receipt to me, instructions are on daveasprey.com. There are eight interviews with the leaders in anti-aging medicine, interviews you cannot find on Bulletproof Radio, and... You get to get those and listen to them as soon as you send me a copy that's copy your receipt. It just says, hey, you bought the book. Thank you for reading the book. And yes, the audiobook is available. I recorded the entire thing. And in case you want to envision things, I recorded it with my shirt off because the audio engineer said my shirt was too rustly. So four days in a sweaty studio in Santa Monica so you could hear me read my book to you. It's that good. <laughs> <laughs> what if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. 
And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, speaking of having uh, shirts off, I'm sitting here today with a guy who would actually probably look way better than me with his shirt off. You can tell if you're watching on video because he's a wall of muscle, a recently retired professional bodybuilder, former Mr. Canada, which he's sorry about, who educates people. <laughs> I live in Canada too. I'm allowed to make jokes about Canadians, right? All right. Uh, and, a, and a guy who's educating people around the globe on a holistic approach to muscle building. And his name is Ben Pekulski. Ben, welcome to the show. Dave, it's truly an honor to be here. As I said, I'm a big fan. Ben also runs the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, a really good podcast, and has a best-selling muscle building program called MI40. The reason, though, that I had him on is not to talk about kettlebells and and meat, although, can we talk about those? I'm an open book. All right. <laughs> uh, but it's that he's got a very unique approach where he talks about mindfulness and how the mind and the body interact. Something that reminds me of a of a, a younger version of what you might have learned from Frank Zane when Frank was on the show. And I was blown away because we all envision bodybuilders like Ben as basically kind of being meatheads. No offense. You got to judge me like that, Dave. Come on. He, he's going to squeeze my head in his bicep right now. No, no, no. Uh, but but this is a stereotype, right? And it probably comes from the 70s. And Well, it's probably real, right? Uh, at many levels, as we spoke about recently, it's just many people are drawn to this sport for particular reasons, and it's maybe fear-based or it's, um, you know, inadequacy or whatever it is. And, and that tends to be the people who are just drawn to what we do. It It's true. In fact, a full disclosure here, uh, we are doing a double podcast here, so... Ben just interviewed me for Muscle Intelligence, and, and it's the best interview Dave has ever done. I, I got to say, if it was you don't, great. it was really good. If you don't hear that interview, you're actually a bad person. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so. Truthfully, look, excellent, amazing interview. Uh, got into the the Superhuman book a lot, and um, you know a lot of other things that you've done that are really helping form many people's lives. Uh, th thanks, Ben. Uh, it was a fun interview, but we talked about why someone would go into bodybuilding, and it, it was fascinating. And I, I said the pejorative statement. And as someone who, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time in the gym. I would was never professional grade, um, but I I do think that sometimes people are attracted to MMA and to bodybuilding, partly because they were bullied or they were traumatized. They just didn't feel safe. Like if I'm a wall of muscle, uh, maybe I'll be safer. Or maybe I'll be more accepted. You're you're sort of saying there's some truth to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree for myself for sure, and I see that. It's pretty common amongst uh, bodybuilders, and I can't, can't speak for people who demo, do MMA, but uh, absolutely, you know, for me, it was this armor that I built that I thought, you know, if I do this, I'll have, um, you know, this this protection, as you say, against whatever was causing my fear in the past. And a lot of it was physical. It wasn't necessarily physically bullied, but I was always physically afraid. I remember that as a kid, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, anxiety around authorities. So, you know, anyone who who I encountered, if it was a teacher or if it was a coach or if it was a parent, I would uh, freeze and I would get nervous and, you know, I would literally stutter. I was so nervous. Wow. And that was a huge amount of fear. And I know where it came from, but I didn't know at the time where it came from and I didn't know I had it. I just thought there was something wrong with me. Where did it come from? A very, very explosive temper with my father. Mm. Yeah. Like explosive temper and he never hit me. Um, but like to the point where you'd come home and look like the Tasmanian devil was in the house and everything was turned upside down. And I saw him do that many times and I'd just stand there and freeze and I wouldn't cry and I wouldn't let it out. I just stood there and freeze. And that became kind of my default. And so anytime I walked into a room with, with a teacher, with an adult, uh, I would feel the same way because I had that feeling coming from my parents, my, my, my father. So fight, flight, or freeze, freeze became your dominant pattern. Yeah. And literally uh, with teachers, I would, you know, get up in front of a class, right? Speak with the teacher and I'd stutter and, and, and trying to speak and trying to get it out. Um, I just figured that was me. I didn't know any different. And that's kind of become my mission now is to, you know, similar to you, is I want to empower people to realize that, you know, the story they tell themselves as to why they are the way they are now is not necessarily reality. It's just the way you've, you've adapted to your environment and your scenarios and uh, you can change. And I think that's the big messaging behind what I do is I want to empower people to change their body and change their mind and realize that no matter what it is in this world, you can do it. You just haven't figured out the steps yet. When you won Mr. Canada, 
did it make you happy? Absolutely not. And I was on this quest. You know, I started at 17 years old thinking I went to the Mr. Olympia contest in 1998 in, in New York City and I was 160 pounds, uh, you know, not a big muscular guy at all. I just started training and I went and I said, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and I, you know, I thought that stepping on the Mr. Olympia stage would be the pinnacle. And you get on stage and you realize it's, you know, very much like making obscene amounts of money. It's, it's, it's empty. It's not what's going to fulfill you. So, um, you know, it was literally in that moment where I was like, oh, well, if this doesn't make me happy, what am I doing? And I started questioning my reality and questioning this desire to accumulate things outside of myself. And for me, it was muscle. And for many people, it's money. And sometimes it's both. Um, but I feel very, very blessed to have had that realization early in my life to understand that it's not the external things that are ever going to make you feel happy and fulfilled. So it's nice to have those things so you can do great things in the world. But you know, finding that internal happiness is the ultimate goal or that fulfillment maybe. And that will then allow you to, you know, pursue the things that you love and, and help more people. Is that why you wrote a book uh, called the M40 or MI40 Foundation, gain twice the muscle in half the time? That that's Those are words that are music to my ears. You mean I could spend less time doing something I wanted to do? I, I kind of like that. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, so as a, as a young aspiring bodybuilder, um, you know, everybody probably hears this, but I was told more so than most people that I couldn't do it. I didn't have the genetics. I didn't have the ability to build muscle. I did not build muscle easily. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to be one of the best bodybuilders in the whole world. And um, it was just, you know, person after person goes, one, you're from Canada. Nobody from Canada has ever been to that level or very many people. Um, you don't have the the structure. You don't have the ability to muscle. You're never going to do it. And uh, so I literally tried everything, Dave, including education, including supplements, including every workout program in the world. And uh, after a certain amount of time, you know, I kind of discovered this method that really allowed me to accelerate my my progress, decrease my injuries, uh, and really almost make muscle building kind of this foregone conclusion. Because a lot of people have what they would call weak or undeveloped body parts. And uh, when you start to train correctly, you know, as I would say, training with intelligence, um, you realize you can be empowered to build any amount of muscle in a short amount of time. And it doesn't have to be nearly as much work as you think. It doesn't have to be in any way, um, you know, certainly it's challenging. You certainly still want to challenge yourself, but it doesn't have to cause pain. It doesn't have to cause, you know, joint pain. Uh, and it's so much more simple than we make it out to be. We just don't think about it the right way. So... Give me the, the Cliff's notes. I want to gain twice the muscle in half the time. What do, what do you do? Well, the simplicity of it is most of the fitness community is uh, exercise-centric, right? We're focused on things outside of ourselves. So people are focused on the exercise. They're focused on you know lifting more weight. They're focused on doing more reps. And, and those things are all external stimuli that are useful only in as much as they create an internal stimulus or an internal response. So my focus is really shifting people's attention from the external, which is like, I want to do a squat or a bench press or a deadlift and I want to lift more weight to realizing that the only thing that matters is if that external stimulus actually creates the internal environment that I want. So I'm having people shift their focus from the external to the internal. And now if we start looking internally, well, what's the internal response I'm looking for? Well, I want to challenge a muscle. My objective then is not to lift a weight. My objective is to challenge a muscle. So how do I become more consciously aware at every inch or since we're in Canada, every millimeter of every rep that I do. So rather than just objectively finishing a set, my objective is not to finish a rep or finish a set. My objective is challenging a muscle. So if I shift my focus to, um, you know, am I actually challenging this muscle at every single millimeter of every single rep, you can get so much more done in so much less time, thereby causing less sympathetic arousal, less sympathetic stress, generating greater stimulus in way less time. That's what it comes down to. Now, that's a skill right? Like anything in life, learning how to dribble a basketball or, you know, anything, there's a skill component. So there has, there has to be this phase of, uh, I'm going to learn the skill. And that's really what I teach is, you know, many people are focused on periodization and they're focused on load and they're focused on all these things that are great and useful. And, and I call those the X's and O's, the things that come afterwards. But the foundation of everything we do is optimization of the skill, optimization of the execution. And, you know, if you ask anyone in the world, how's, how's your execution? They go, oh, it's good. It's okay. Bullshit. It's completely wrong, right? Most people are terrible, you know, abysmal usually. And even though you think you're doing it correctly, if you think you're training your, your biceps or your chest, most people are not because the way they're taught is incorrect. Not that they're not capable. It's what you're taught in high school gym class or on YouTube is not correct 
for your body, right? So you're built very differently than me. So how can we do the same exercises and think we're going to get the same result? It's not possible. So how do you then learn to do things that fit Dave's body and uh, optimize the stress to the muscle for Dave's body? Because if Dave does the exercises that Ben does, Dave's going to get sore back, sore knees, sore shoulders, all these things that, oh, well, hey, man, maybe I'm just not built for it, right? Well, yeah, you are built for it. You absolutely can do it if you want to. Uh, you just haven't learned how correctly yet. That doesn't sound like a short answer. <laughs> I mean, you're sort of saying work with a, work with a coach. Someone's going to customize exercises no, for you. No, because it's actually so much more simple than it sounds. It's just uh, most people are just looking at it the wrong way, right? We're looking at it like the, the earth is flat and in reality it's round. So rather than just looking at it from an exercise perspective, the simplicity of it is, Dave, you look at every muscle in the body. Let's say your, your physique muscles, and there's not that many of them. Look at them and go, okay, well, this muscle has two ends. Every muscle in the body has two ends. Let's say we're looking at your pack. It's, it's you know on your arm and it's on your sternum. And all, all this muscle does is pull one end closer to the other. So how do I then forget about the exercise? And obviously the exercise matters at the end of the day, but... Um, I'm, I'm more focused on, is this muscle going through its full excursion, so a full lengthening and shortening cycle, under load, under resistance the entire time? So it's really that simple. So rather than thinking about doing a bench press for chest. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, twice the muscle half the time. I want a bigger bicep here, okay? So there, it's fully straight. It's under t under tension. I just did a curl here. We're doing this on, on video. <laughs> so it was a very impressive curl with no weight. I like, what did I do wrong there? How did I not build twice the muscle in half the time? The resistance and how it's applied against your body is variable, okay. right? So if you pick up a weight, it matters where the resistance is coming from, what type of resistance it is, and how you set up your body relative to that resistance. So if you lay down in a bench press, Dave, and you do a bench press with a bar on a bench, which is what many people do, you're going to get sore shoulders. Why do I know that? Because I can look at your structure and tell by looking at your structure, you're never going to build your pecs on a flat bench press. That doesn't mean you can't build your pecs. That means that you just can't build your pecs on that particular exercise, right? Because of the structure that you have. So learning how to pick exercises that most appropriately challenge your muscle rather than, you know, this arbitrary, hey, I'm going to go in there and do a bench press because some guy in Muscle and Fitness or Flex Magazine says this is the best exercise for chest. All right. So you looked at me and because you are someone who's spent... 10,000 plus hours doing this. You train people, you run courses, you run muscle camps around the country. Uh, you have this, I'm going to call it the, the Neo from the matrix no, version zeros and no, ones. It's, it's so simple. How are you reading my structure though? You just look at basic, um, biomechanical orientation of the muscles, yeah. right? So we're speaking about your chest. It's, sure. your, it's the orientation of your sternum, right? Okay. So if you have a flat rib cage relative to, let's say you're standing up tall, or even sitting, and your, your rib cage is relatively vertical. Mm -hmm. When you lay down into a bench press, you can imagine all of those uh, muscle fibers are laying down against your rib cage. So if you want to get those fibers to directly oppose the resistance that's being applied in the body, right? So I have, I have a weight coming down on me in this vertical plane. Well, I need the muscles that I'm trying to train to actually oppose that resistance. Does that make sense? Yep. So I need them to be kind of in the equal and opposite direction. So if you're laying flat on your back, the muscles in your body, they're going to most directly oppose a barbell coming down to me or a dumbbell, it's going to be your shoulders just because of your mechanics. Where someone has a slightly more, so if I'm standing, slightly more maybe oblique sternum, kind of like I have, I lay into a bench press and I have all these more muscle fibers laying in direct opposition to the resistance. And now that's so, it sounds complicated, but it's so easy to see if you just look at it. If we actually showed, if we did a video and go like, here, here's the reason you're not going to build your pecs doing conventional exercises. But if you just shift this exercise 30 degrees in this direction, now all of a sudden you've completely empowered yourself to shift your ability to build muscle exponentially. And that's the same with every muscle. So you would look at me and say, I need an incline or a decline press and it's going to work better for me. Incline's not going to work. Decline's going to work better okay. for you. And then it comes down to, do I have the mobility at my shoulder? Do it on a decline? And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but there's adjustments we can, we can make to make sure you do that. So, so that's really fascinating. And no one who's been on the show has ever said that. Although I've had a bunch of people talk about functional movement and I've written about it in some of my books. If, if you're moving wrong, you're probably going to have pain. If you have pain, it's going to suck your willpower. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like and, and I still talk about that too, because there's you talk about functional movement, and I, I believe functional movement is valuable. But uh, again, this acknowledgement that you're built differently than me. So if we were to pick up the same weight and do it in quote unquote, what looks like the same way on the outside, we're going to have a completely different result, right? Just based on structure. Okay. So what I would do for someone who's looking to optimize any type of muscle building uh, we're just going to kind of dictate the sequence of muscle contraction. So if I want to have, 
you know, Dave build the chest. I need to make sure the chest is the thing working. And just because I lay into that exercise doesn't default to like, hey, this is gonna work. So speaking of this functional term, there's there's function and there's isolation, right? Okay. So when you're training functionally, I'm I, you know, and I think that word is blasphemized, right? It, it's thrown all <laughs> over the place. Like it, it's it, it's a terribly misunderstood term. But you know, functional is what is my body meant to do in function. But when you look at swinging kettlebell, there's really nothing functional about these things, regardless. Um, there's function in isolation, and every body should have a balance of both, provided you're trying to build some type of aesthetic, right? If you, if you don't care about aesthetic, then this conversation is probably not right for you. Although, there's a huge argument that I would make that says um, the idea of isolating muscle is by far the most metabolically efficient way to lose body fat. Uh, it's by far, uh, I think, and we could argue about this probably, is, is vital for longevity, right? The more muscle you have, the more your body may be responsive to um, using glucose uh, and be less insulin resistant. And I think there's value in that. And spe- I mean, it's all relative, right? Depending on where you start. If you have very little muscle mass, training this way is the most important way to train because you're going to train uh, without generating pain mm-hmm. to your joints. Um, well, there's two directions we could go with that. Let's talk about the longevity thing because you know, I just wrote my book on it. I believe there's an inverted U-shaped curve for muscle. And what that means is that if you don't have enough muscle, you're screwed, right? And this means you're gonna break a hip at some point, you're gonna get sick, you're gonna get a virus, you will not have resilience and you'll die. And if you just follow the normal curve of sarcopenia and stem cell loss over time, you lose tissues uh, as you age. And this is one of the things that is likely uh, to uh, reduce the quality and length of your life. There's another set of research that shows if you're carrying way too much muscle. Absolutely agree. Uh, yeah. that, that that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the, my favorite quotes, uh, the New York Times wrote an article about Bulletproof Coffee and, and me a while ago, and they interviewed me, and they said, so Dave walks into the room, and he looks almost muscular. I'm like, oh, my God, the New York Times said I was almost <laughs> muscular. Bam, anti-aging win. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, so like I, I would, and I'm going to be real jud- judgy here. I'd look at you and say, you're probably carrying a little too much muscle for the ultimate longevity, Yeah, but that you're way healthier and better off than 95% of the population. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And okay. when I was a bodybuilder, I was I was focused on being the best bodybuilder in the world, and that was my focus. And now, um, it's different. Right now, like I said, at some point in your life, you become aware of your own mortality, and you shift your focus from this thing that's very vain, that's very external. And for me, it wasn't even about vanity at all. As much as that sounds ironic, it was all about, like, I want to prove to myself, and I want to prove to the world that I can do this. Um, so now the shift is like, okay, well now I want, just want to live the highest quality life and, um, much less muscle centric, right? Muscle, much less, much less focus on building muscle, which is why, you know, you and I are even having a conversation now is because, you know, I'm really into well, what does it look like minimum effective dose to maximize my longevity? Like how much can I, how little can I train, uh, to, you know, quote unquote, build or maintain the amount of muscle I have. So for me, it's not building, it's maintaining or even losing, uh, but what's the minimum effective dose that the average person should have? And how do you then, as, as an executive, as CEO, as an entrepreneur, make the most of every minute you have in the gym? That's my focus. That is uh, that is the right focus, I, I would say, because it's very easy to spend two hours a day in the gym. Yep. And that's two hours a day you don't get to spend with your kids. Exactly. You don't get to spend with loved ones. And that said, you might have great friends in the gym and, and that's a part of community building. That's the battle we're both fighting, right? It's yeah. like we're both running businesses. We both have children. And I'll tell you, most of the time now, if it comes down to, or, or all of the time I'll say, is if it comes down to working out or spending time with my kids, my kids went 100% of the time. Yeah. They're by far my greatest priority. You know, I have my value system established and these are the greatest priority. And if, if it comes down to even, you know, so it's family and finances and fitness in that order for me. So if anything comes down to making a decision, I have my values established and uh, I just won't train or I'll, maybe we'll incorporate training with them. Maybe we'll go for a walk or we'll, we'll run. How old are you? 38. Your values are broken. Are they? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> Not to be judgy even more. Yeah. Um, I, I've had the same, my kids are a little older than yours, uh, another five, six years, uh, sort of the same stack. And I, I share this with my assistants, with my family. It actually comes down to health first. Of course. Yeah, of course. Because if you don't take care of that, and fitness is a function of health, but it, it's right. not the only one. So I incorporate health into family. Like I, I kind of okay. believe this because my health is also my, my family's health, right? Uh, so everything I do is, you know, are we gonna, are we walking together? Are we getting morning sunshine together? We breathe every morning together. We do the gratitude practice together. And so I try to incorporate those things together. Yeah. 
Nice. Okay. So then you, you've got those sort of integrated because if you if your health goes because you're focused on family, you say, oh, I'm going to take the kids uh, to school this morning. I'm going to go to all the school events and I'm not going to take my supplements. I'm not going to eat right. I'm not going to get enough sleep. You know, For me, I, I've definitely cut sleep when I shouldn't have when I was younger uh, just because I'm like, I, I want to be able to put bread on the table, gluten-free, high protein, you know, whatever, good bread. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I want to spend time and be present for my wife and for my kids. And then you find at the end of the day, you know, I didn't generate any growth hormone last night. I got crappy sleep and I've, I didn't do any stress reduction things. And so you realize, oh, I can reduce more stress in less time. I can meditate faster. I can spend less time in the gym. But but I found, look, if I don't do that health thing first, I can't show up as a father. Right. And you're definitely not showing up at your best. And that's why this shift is happening for me is this, right. that's the realization is, you know, one of the reasons I retired from professional bodybuilding was because I wanted to be there for my kids. And when you walk around that big training as often as I did, eating as often as I did, I wasn't, didn't have enough time. I wasn't able to be present. My energy stunk, as you'll understand, as being 300 pounds. Um, so I was like, forget this. I can't do this. Like if I can't get down on the, on the ground and play with my two-year-old daughter, something's wrong. I need to change this now. And that's why all of these practices have become a huge part of my life. So I started with yoga and meditation and, um, you know, just uh, more aerobic exercise and optimizing every state inside or every, um, system inside my body. Why couldn't you get down on the floor? Just too muscle bound? Well, it's uncomfortable, man. No, I could, but it's uncomfortable. Like if, I, if my daughter's crawling around on the ground and she wants to play with a toy, like I want to be able to sit down there comfortably. I want to be able to crawl around and, and chase after her and tickle her. And like when you're that big, you get it, man. Like if you had a two-year-old child when you were 300 pounds, it's not easy to keep up with those people, man. Like my daughter, my daughter's older now, but uh, it's certainly not easy. That's so fascinating. I definitely noticed uh, there was a time... Uh, when I was working on losing all the weight, where I put on a substantial amount of muscle. I mean, you do 45 minutes a day of weight, six days a week. Uh, you're going to have muscle underneath all that fat. And you know, I, I could feel that I was stronger, but I was still highly blubbered. But yeah, there, there were times when I, I did not have the flexibility and I'm you know, highly flexible now. I don't, I don't think it's a matter of flexibility. So for me, it's not even that. It's just like, it's just a little bit more uncomfortable to, okay. to like get in those positions and stay there for long periods of time, which is, you know, part of the reason why I, I transitioned to yoga is because like, I want to be able to do these things. And uh, I love the mindful aspect of, yeah. you know, how can I stay present and calm and, and uh, you know, parasympathetic while I'm in these ultimately uncomfortable positions when I'm that big. Uh, there's no doubt uh, yoga made a huge difference uh, for me. Uh, and I'm going to share a piece of advice that my wife gave me that's only a little bit politically incorrect. Um, when I, I first met her, um, she was still in Sweden. And she said, you should try yoga. I'm like, all right, I'll try yoga. This was you know a long time ago. She's like 15 years ago. And I said, do you have any advice for me? You know, should I go like, you know, the, the prison style yoga or sweaty yoga or whatever? There's all kinds of different yogas. Yes, I insulted half my yoga friends. But... Uh, she said, here's my advice. Find a really attractive yoga teacher. And I go, what? Like, what are you talking about? What does that have to do? She said, because then you'll go to yoga class. <laughs> and that was her whole piece of advice. True. And you know, the, it was the opposite for me. So like the physical attractive thing would have been nice, but I actually found this guy who was a really advanced yoga teacher, probably been doing it for 50 years. He's in his yeah. late sixties. And the spiritual approach that he had, the complete, um, you could kind of like you, Dave, authentic, right? Yeah. Could, so I come into your home and I could see that you're living the life, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than just preaching the message, he was authentic. And that was the thing that appealed most to me because I knew that my journey was spiritual uh, more than physical. And uh, so I found this gentleman and it was the most transformative thing for me to spend, you know, 12 months with him and uh, just really get my mind in the right place. Not only when I'm doing yoga, but then taking that away and how that much that transfers in the rest of your life was transformative. And I love it that you said that uh, because... Uh, what I did is, is I said, I'm just going to try a bunch of yoga classes and see what sticks. And I ended up doing most of my beginning yoga training uh, with a guy as well, uh, because it turns out it doesn't matter how attractive a yoga teacher is. It matters how good are they at being a yoga teacher and do they vibe with you? Like, like, like there's, there's an energetic thing with the teacher breathing or if they're adjusting you or if they're you know, giving you instruction, some yoga teachers are going to sound like they're lecturing you or talking down to you. And others are going to sound like they're helping you or you know, they, they just know what to say or how to demonstrate that or saying, Oh, you turn your knee a little bit. And you're like, Oh my God, I just touched my toes. Whatever it is, that was far more important. So I ended up spending uh, most of my time, you know, with my favorite teacher was, was a guy and it was funny because he was—he uh, decided he was going to do a vegan diet, and uh, same as Kenny. 
the problem was that if you're a yoga teacher and you're doing 10 hours a day of yoga classes like a lot of them are, that is crazy amounts of work. And and he was actually starting to get health problems from it. So I kind of might've made him eat some butter and a little bit of steak and he felt much better. Uh, so we were sort of helping each other, yeah. but I got, you know, I got so much knowledge about how my body worked that I was just unaware of as you know an engineer who'd been overweight for a long period of time and had spent time in a gym. So I, I, I love it that you're like, find the right teacher for you. So I, I was grateful for my wife's yeah. advice because it at least encouraged me to try <laughs> sure. different teachers, but physical attractiveness- It says a lot no. about our personality, right? I mean, yeah. to find a secure woman that goes, go find a hot yoga teacher. <laughs> you, know, you know, you found a winner win, right? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. She was secure. All right, let's talk something. I talk about something that you've taught in your courses uh, that I've come across. You say there's no such thing as overtraining. Am I paraphrasing too much? Uh, well- maybe I think it depends on who you are and where you are. Right. So if I, if I took you in the gym right now, and you're training however many times a week you are, and I double it and I said, Dave, we're going to go and train twice as much as you are now. That's overtraining because your body's not capable of, of responding to it or adapting to it. But well, I got to a point in my career where I was training so much, but I had my recovery so dialed in. So there's times when I was training five hours a day, uh, but I was eating enough calories and my nutrient and my recovery was dialed in. Um, that my body was capable of responding and growing from it. And, and so if I say overtraining, well, what is that based on, right? Is it based on my ability to get back in there, my ability to feel cognitively alert, my, my heart rate variability? I was able to keep all those things uh, in relatively healthy range because I had my recovery on point. So, you know, that's, that's a statement that I made probably five or six years ago that I still stand behind, but most people don't understand the context. Okay. So what you said was, new research shows that overtraining is about as likely as winning the lottery. <laughs> Did you change your mind? Well. <laughs> By the way, I do show prep. It's, no, I, no, I have no. my notes here. That's no, why it's real, I can quote that. So really, um, the likelihood of people overtraining in the gym from a muscular-based stimulus, it's actually pretty low. So why would somebody who... Uh, trains the way they are. Let's say you walk in the gym right now and, you, and without any guidance from me or anybody, you just go in the gym and train. It's not likely that the training is going to be the issue, right? So what would be the issue? It's the stress that exists in the rest of your life. So if, if for most people, the training that the stress causes or, or the stress that the training causes mm -hmm. um, is much less than the stress that exists in the rest of their life. So you get the, this, this whole stress response is this general adaptation that the body makes. And most people have way more stress that exists outside in their life than actually is generated in the gym. So in most people, the, the it, their issue is not the training itself. Because if I remove the rest of those stresses in my life okay. and, I, and I reduce those to a level that was appropriate or even healthy, their ability to recover from that training stimulus that their body is, is able to generate is exponentially greater. All right. And to your credit, this was actually in muscle and fitness where you said this. You also said, as long as you're giving your body adequate rest and time to recover, overtraining isn't a thought. Yeah. Um, and and I, st I stick with that because, like I said, in, in this common society, the, the, this, the training stress is so nominal for people, right? Because yeah. most people can't actually work hard enough to generate that much stress. It's just that when they're going into the gym, they're already stressed. They're gener they're, it's like digging a hole versus digging a trench, right? right? They're coming into the gym and they've already got half a trench dug and they're going to come and just throw more stress in, on top of that or dig a deeper hole. And that's that's when overtraining is a problem. I mean, it has nothing to do with the training itself for most people. So, so it's net total stress yeah. versus net total recovery. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we're actually very aligned on that. I believe that most people are under-recovered. And if you recover well and you feel well, your resilience, which is a measure of how much stress you can handle, is much higher. And in my case, I'm so resilient now compared to any time in my entire life. Uh, and it's because of that focus on recovery. That's why Upgrade Labs exists. It's it's much more about recovery than it is about stimulating. But you can over overtrain or overstimulate muscles. If you're doing it correctly, yeah, of course, like at, at some level, right? And I'm sure muscle and fitness was sensationalizing my quote a little of bit, course. But, but it's okay. I, and I, cause I, I do believe that at some level, like if you and I went in the gym and I was able to control your nutrition and, and your stress and your recovery, I'm confident you could, you would be appropriately sore and appropriately able to challenge a muscle and get back in the gym and do it again in 72 hours, right? In 72 hours, I, I get that. Um, one of the reasons that, that I'm focusing on that is um, a couple days ago, uh, I said, oh, let me do 90 minutes of really <laughs> that, intense electrical stimulation. That's not the same, Dave. That's that's not internally generated stimulus. So that's the difference, right? You can never generate that amount of stimulus to your glutes. It's true. Uh, my glutes are, uh, they feel like uh, someone kicked them. 
And I did for 90 minutes uh, run stimulation, like heavy duty stimulation over them, much more so than I could have done. If I was consciously doing squats, I would have tapped out, but because I was providing external stimulation, I can tell you, you could bounce a quarter off my butt right now, but I mean, I, I definitely overtrained it. And yesterday I was kind of a zombie sure. as a result of that, almost almost to the point of uh, hitting the Uncle Rabdo level of CrossFit <laughs> workout, uh, which this is a, like overtraining at the extreme can clog your kidneys with protein from muscle breaking down that can actually put you in the hospital. But you, your body doesn't have the capability of pushing that far on its own. So it, it's yeah. an external stimulus, right? And that's the reality. I think most people's body will shut down and their mind will shut down well before they're able to overtrain. Overtraining is this repetitive accumulative stimulus, right? So if you're going to get in there multiple hours a day, and uh, you know, not recover, not eat well, not sleep well, have a huge amount of stress. Of course, you're going to overtrain, no question. So, what I'm really focused on is is then this holistic approach to muscle building, right? Is is you know, this is I'm not someone who just teaches, hey, go in the gym and work hard and lift heavy. It's just kind of the opposite of what I teach. You know, if I teach anything, it's an intelligent approach to building your greatest body. And there's there's a number of things that go into that that people should always be considering that I weigh evenly, right? So I don't say training is more important than nutrition. Nutrition is most important, like. I think it depends on who you are and what your your rate limiting factor is, right? So it could be your sleep, it could be your stress, it could be your environment, it could be your mindset, it could be your training in your um, in your nutrition. So it could be any of those. Those are what I call my six pillars. And um, if you're placing more weight on one, oftentimes there's one or two you're neglecting, and those would be the ones that would be the most important for you to address in uh, transforming your body. If you assume that someone has proper form and they've chosen the right exercise they for their don't. physiology. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you can't. And I hate, I hate yeah. making that, that okay. concession because most human beings go, oh, I'm pretty good. And you're not. You're just not. Like, you know, pretty good is so far off. Like, let's say pretty good is contracting 10% of the time. And that's okay. average, I would say. Maybe 10, 20% of the time. Like, okay, now what if we can take that to 70 or 80? Well, now I can get so much more result out of so much less right. work. Well, let's assume that you're standing there telling me Got how it. to do it. All right. Yelling profanities. Uh, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Organic grass-fed <laughs> profanities. I, right. <laughs> from a yogic perspective. Sure. Right. So you're there guiding me on every movement. So I'm doing it perfectly. And I have a choice of modalities to load my muscles. I can do kettlebells. I can do traditional bar, bars and dumbbells. I could do resistance bands. And I could do the electrical programmable resistance like we're doing at Upgrade Labs, like, like things uh, things isochronic. like uh, yeah, isochronic, uh, but uh, things like uh, tonal uh, or, uh, or ARX or things like that. Yeah. Which of those is going to provide the maximum load in the minimum amount of time? Well, ARX for sure. So it's isokinetic, which okay, means- Or, or tonal, the tonal? equivalent. I, I don't know tonal, oh, but yeah. Tonal is a, a similar idea, but it mounts on the wall and it's more of a home device, like a Peloton for home. So effectively, okay. as much as I push, it pushes back against me okay. resistance-wise, right? So that's called isokinetic. And that allows me then to challenge a muscle exactly with how much I can push against it. Okay. And that's the ideal scenario for all exercise. The, the challenge there that I find, and I've used these, these modalities, the only challenge I find is stability. So you'll find a lot of people actually aren't able to produce enough or a lot of resistance uh, or force because they don't have the skill of the movement. And if someone gets better and better and better at that skill, their ability to produce force is tremendous. And, yeah. then, and then you can get exponential gains. I completely think that. Mark Bell, one of the top powerlifters in the yeah, world. Yeah, I know Mark, yep. He was out here. I was guessing you guys must like know each other. Uh, he was out here, and I, I put him on the ARX, the stuff we're using at Upgrade Labs. And you know, after six reps, he's like, oh, my God, you're my pecs. And, and this is probably one of the top 0.00001% right. strongest people on earth. But there's a reason amazing. for that, right? That's the idea is like because he has the ability to contract that muscle – he'll get actually much better results. Yeah. Like an average person would come in and still get great results because they're they're being efficient. But because he's able to do that thing so precisely, he's, his ability to use it is going to be great. His numbers were insane. Yeah. Uh, but his level of, of muscle exhaustion was way off the charts compared to normal. Right. And that's uh, the ideal the scenario, right? Yeah. And I, I still believe that is like the IRX is, is uh, the ideal scenario for challenging muscles. If you can have something that maximally challenges a muscle at every millimeter, as I said, which is what that's doing. Um, I still think there may be some limitations in, in uh, the diversity of movements because yeah. obviously you don't want to overdevelop certain planes of movement. But as far as the actual science of it, it's great. 
and you also have to do the muscles right and or do the mov- the movements right. Um, I've had times where squats for me, I've injured my low back and all kinds of squats because I have some weakness there. Sure, um, that's probably structural. But that doesn't that mean you can't careful. squat, right? No, that it means, means we, need, be careful. we need to learn how to do it correctly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so there's our our sort of well, let's do a hierarchy. Okay, so you don't have access to an ARX or a tunnel. Uh, any of the isokinetic stuff like that. What comes next? Electrical stimulation, it's, resistance it's Im- bands? It's what? impossible to say, Dave. It, okay. it depends. On, and the answer is, I think, all of them, right? Okay. I think they all provide different value. So it, it depends on where someone is in that continuum of acquiring the skill. Like if you're really poor at using dumbbells or barbell, well, it's not going to provide a stimulus to your body, right? You're going to have to use such a small amount of weight that it's going to be more about coordinating the skill than it is going to be about challenging the muscle, okay. in which case, well, then I want a balance of coordinating the skill because I want to learn that skill long-term within something that may be a little more externally stabilized that allows me to challenge the muscle directly. Okay. You say something, in fact, you say directly, there's no such thing as genetically weak body parts. Yeah. So, you know, I've made this statement a lot is if you can build one muscle, you can build them all. Um, because it's all the same internal environment. There's one asterisk that I always add there that sometimes gets overlooked is the only way, the only reason you wouldn't be able to build a body part is if you have really, really long tendons and short muscle bellies. But if typically if people have short muscle bellies somewhere, they have them in most places. So that would kind of mean your ability to build muscle everywhere would be the same. So yeah, if you can build muscle in your quads or your shoulders or your pecs or whatever, it's the same muscle fiber composition, right? It's the same internal hormonal environment. It's the same protein synthesis that's happening. It's just you haven't learned to direct the stimulus yet through that muscle. So if I pick up a weight and you pick up a weight, let's say we're doing a, a squat, you may get lower back pain or maybe big glutes and I may get big quads. What's the difference? It doesn't mean you can't build your quads. It just means the way your body does this exercise mechanically right okay. now, it means I just haven't challenged that muscle appropriately. So I just have to learn to adjust it. I see your point. You're saying if you can get a signal into a muscle, the muscle's going to grow. All right. Exactly. I would 100% agree with that. And there are some some things that I am going to call genetic weaknesses, sometimes epigenetic as well. Uh, for instance, 20% of people have spina bifida. Sure. At least uh, one of the bifidas. Right. That, that was a line from a famous movie. Do you, do you know the one? I don't know the movie. Oh, geez. The, the one with the dumb race car driver. I'm forgetting its name. Ricky. Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby, and he's trying to impress... Talladega Nights? Yeah, thank you. He's trying to impress a lady, and, and he's I, I do some charity work. And she's oh, what charity? He goes, uh, it's uh, for one of the bifidas, because he couldn't <laughs> think of spina bifida. Right. But spina bifida is a condition that's partly genetic, and it's when your mom couldn't process the folic acid that the government requires be added to certain foods because of a genetic variant that a third of us have that says you need a methylated folic acid, and that normal folic acid actually can be toxic for you. So that means that your lower uh, vertebra don't fuse completely. Sure. And it's harmless in almost everyone because spina, spina bifida occultus, by the way, I have this as 20% of people do, they don't even know it, but there could be changes in your lower back. Um, the other one is there's huge variety in collagen formation inside sure. the body. And so there are people, um, something called the RCCX phenotype, where their ligaments don't uh, they're not as strong as other people, but they might be more bendy. Sure. Uh, so most of the guys in my family, uh, at least on my dad's side. I have that. Oh, you have that? You have mm-hmm. RCCX? Mm-hmm. Um, high five. There there we go. So you're the only person I've ever talked to who actually knows about this on right. the show. Um, in fact, there's people with Ehlers-Danlos disease where they really can't form collagen, right? And what ends up happening is you can pop a ligament off. So if you, mm-hmm. if you get a muscle too strong without strengthening the ligaments at the same time, you can have serious damage there. So there are some genetically weak sure. body parts, but no genetically weak muscles because muscles will so, grow the so, same. So there's, there's certain okay. um, predispositions, right? That like, you know, some people can have injuries. Well, if there's an injury limiting you from getting to a, into a range of motion, we can't build that muscle there. If there's certain genetic predispositions that, you know, you have some spinal abnormalities or some joint abnormalities, of course. But the point being, when I say there's no weak body parts, meaning if you can build one muscle, that you can build yeah. them all. I a hundred percent agree with you. And there's you know some very tiny stabilizer muscles along the spine that have nothing to do with how you look. If those stay strong as you age, you're much less likely to get injured and have all this back pain. Yeah. Of course, how you get those, it's probably going to be a yoga pose or maybe electricity, but you're not going to get that from doing a squat. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know. Right. You, so you know more than I do. Yeah. So so <laughs> the foundation of all movement, or the, I believe the fall, the foundation of all progress, starts at the spine. Right. Everything should be should be stabilized at what I call the three hubs of stability. So the shoulder girdle, uh, the trunk and spine, mm-hmm. and the pelvis. 
And if those things are not stabilized, your ability to produce force and speed at your limbs is going to be diminished. So the first thing that every program should start with is your ability to not flex out your spine, right? So flexion is kind of rounding of my spine. So the ability to maintain a strong, straight spine as I bend over, as I add resistance. So we can absolutely challenge those muscles. So it's they're called anti-flexors. So if my spine flexion is this, you know, rounding of my back, and I want all my erectors to act as anti-flexors, so preventing that movement. And that should be the foundation of every training program. Like, you know, a kettlebell swing is an example. I think it's a bad example, but because you brought that up, it's an example, or a deadlift is an example. And, um, you know, as long as someone's progressing the forces that they're exposing their body to, those things are very, very useful. Where, where exercises kind of get a bad reputation is saying, well, you know, I'm going to go from zero to 100, right? I'm going to go from doing nothing to doing a ton. And then people hurt themselves or they're doing things incorrectly or their body's not prepared for it. And that's really the foundation of, of what every exercise scientist should be teaching is it's not about the movement. It's about who's doing it. What's the, what's the objective? And is, is this exercise hitting that objective? You know, and there's no such thing as bad exercises. It's just people doing them incorrectly in the wrong context. Okay. I, I like that perspective a lot. You say meditation builds muscle. How does meditation build muscle? Like what's the meditation that I use to build muscle? <laughs> we're going to, we're going to focus on building muscle, Dave. It's all about the secret. I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> the I'm secret. Teasing. I manifested muscle through wanting. Yes. Uh, that's actually all I did. I never went in the gym. Um, <laughs> not, well, really. So what is most people's limitation in building muscle, right? It, one, the skill. They don't have their ability, the ability to, to perform the skill correctly. Uh, the second thing is most people go in the gym and they can't focus. So their, their mind quits well before their body. And another thing is where's their, their autonomic nervous system, right? So where most people are, are, especially in current day and age, are way overstimulated, way too much sympathetic tone. So that little bit of meditation can bring that parasympathetic uh, tone up a little bit and allow them to live in this ret in this recovery state a little more often. So again, I don't want to get into the mechanics of the autonomic nervous system, but if we can allow our resting default um, autonomic state to be slightly more parasympathetic than it is sympathetic, now we're giving our body this opportunity to uh, be able to recover and, and be more anabolic rather than catabolic. So the this, this sympathetic nervous system is, the, as we speak about a lot, the nervous system of catabolic, it's breakdown. Whereas the parasympathetic is anabolic, it's build up, it's recovery and repair. So most people live in this high sympathetic arousal that just literally prevents muscle from, from building. So by meditating or breathing or doing anything that's mindful to just increase that parasympathetic tone, even as simple as like going outside and getting the, again, a panoramic view um, is very, very parasympathetic and can contribute massively to muscle building for people who tend to be very parasympathetically uh, oriented. Okay. So give me a specific visualization that I should do like right now. Bigger biceps. <laughs> there's, there's no... <laughs> Damn it. Visualize them, Dave. Go. We'll do, we'll do it. If we both do it together, it's going to work. <laughs> I, um, I really wanted you to give everyone listening the bicep meditation. Yes. Now, it doesn't exist, right? But it is, um, there's certainly value, and I think, in believing in that you can. Because yeah. when you say you can't, you know, you certainly won't. Um, but, you know, this this meditation of, you know, maybe picturing yourself, visualizing yourself. I did a lot of visualization throughout yeah. my career. It's very, very powerful. And I think, you know, Arnold spoke about it way back in the day. It's yeah. like, you got to see it and you got to believe it. And and if you see and believe it, you, you know, you don't realize how much it changes your mechanics. It changes your posture. It changes your belief. All these things shift and all of a sudden your body will def develop more. And again, I don't want to get into that kind of esoteric aspect of it, but it's certainly pretty definable that, um, you know, what you're thinking about and how you're thinking about it absolutely matters. One of the easiest types of meditation to do actually is a, a guided uh, body awareness meditation. Yeah. So you know, imagine your toes, imagine you know, golden yeah. light on your toes, imagine each toe and you move up through each part of the body. I used to do this actually for years uh, because it turns on nerves and awareness and the mind will pay attention to what you want it to pay attention to. Yeah. So you end up visualizing everything when you're done, you're sort of floating somewhere and you're buzzing with energy and going, what the heck just happened? And there's various soundtracks you can all, you can get that'll do that. And then you learn how to move that awareness around inside your body. There's nothing that stops you from, as you're doing that, imagining your body being uh, twice as big as it is now. <laughs> and will the body listen? Actually, I really do believe it does. Maybe. And maybe that, if anything, allows you to connect better when, once you go do yeah. actually direct a stimulus through it, right? Because ultimately, we're all just 
we're just responding to external forces and external stressors, right? Mm-hmm. So if I can direct that stress, now all of a sudden maybe I get a greater response. And there's so many facets to how people can change their exercise. Really, my objective is to is to empower people to realize that they can change, right? Whether it be children, teenagers, or anyone, that you absolutely can build the body you want. Step one is let's stop with the story that you have as to what you can't. Okay. You've shifted from... Uh, you know, professional bodybuilder, I've got to eat all the time just to keep enough enough protein coming in to maintain all this muscle to what you eat now as you're a, a retired professional bodybuilder. What did you do at the peak of your bodybuilding nutritionally and how did you change it to now? Well, uh, throughout my career, Early in my career, I did what everyone else does. It's, uh, you know, you focus on what the magazines say or what you see your favorite expert doing, and you do that. And that's just like eating as much as, as possible and, and uh, training as hard as possible. It's what I call just kind of a mindless approach. We're just going to go and do. And then as I evolved in my career, it really focused on uh, learning my body and, and feeling what things felt like. So if I was uh, really, really sore, that told me my body needed something. And if I was really, really tired, I needed something else. And if I was, you know, inflamed, I would look and I would feel and I would, I would shift that. So learning to pay attention is kind of the foundation of everything. So, you know, during my career, it, it was very much focused around, um, you know, writing down absolutely everything and then measuring like, okay, today I did this amount of volume in my workout and I had this much sleep and I feel this way. So, if, I, if, I, if I'm feeling okay with those variables, now I can then progress it up. So if my training volume goes up a little bit, then I can obviously progress my calories up. So it had to be very, very calculated, right? Okay. Yeah. So whereas now, it's as you, as you speak about, it's about feeling great, um, performing really well, but longevity more than anything. So I'm not attached to really anything. Like I'm not dogmatic about you need to eat this much protein, you need to eat this many vegetables, or, or I'm a keto, or I'm carnivore, or I'm vegan. I just really am kind of um, focused around for my DNA, and, and I examine my DNA. What does my body need? Am I lacking any vitamins? Am I lacking any micronutrients? And, and do I feel great all the time? So I want my body in a ketogenic state sometimes. I want my body consuming carbohydrates sometimes. Yep. Am I training hard? If I'm training hard, well, guess what? I'm going to eat some carbohydrates because I know not only are carbohydrates fueling performance, but they're also mitigating cortisol. So they're, they're your body's, one of your body's, if not best mechanism to, to kind of modulate cortisol. So it needs to bring down that uh, cortisol response. So if I'm very stressed or if I'm not sleeping very well, well, carbohydrates can be a really great tool. So now training or, or nutrition, because I have a bit of a, of, a, of a knowledge base, and that's literally all I teach. I don't teach any dogma around nutrition. I just try to teach uh, tools in the tool yeah. belt, right? Eat so, to feel good really matters. Yeah. It like does. cheesecake. Yeah, it makes me feel really good for, for about five minutes. <laughs> exactly. And then and then it's done. But you you acknowledge that, yeah. right? And most people like and I, and I teach my kids that. I'm like, well, that's good for your mouth. Your mouth really enjoys that. And that's good. You want you want your mouth to feel good. But what are the nutrients you're eating for the other parts of your body? Mm-hmm. Right. Like this this thing your brain really likes this. So let's eat some of that. And this thing your muscles really like. So let's, let's eat some of that. And this thing may be good for whatever your blood or your skin. And kids really attach to that. And you know, maybe parents should attach or adults should attach to that too. Is like, what am I feeding with this? You know? Yeah. And I also, I, I teach my kids, I'm like, look, you really want to eat that? Like, let's look at the ingredients. Look how much sugar's in there. Would you rather go home and eat two of these organic coconut-based ice cream bars? Because it's the same amount of sugar. So you can have two of those or that. Like, I don't really want to eat this. I'm like, well, okay. And it's gotten to the point where it's largely self-regulating, where they say, I don't want to feel bad. I don't like how I feel when I eat stuff like that. So they just don't eat it. Because they know what it's like to eat well, and then you just, let's go eat garbage. Well, you're bright enough to talk to a a child in a way that uh, is not emotional, is not like dogmatic. You're just trying to help them make the right decisions. And what I find is a lot of parents just aren't, or they don't take the time, right? They don't have the ability to communicate with children. And, you know, if you can't, like, start, right? As a parent out there, it's very important that you slow down and communicate with the kids and make it their choice, right? If if you're the same way as me, if someone told me that I had to eat something, there's no way I'm doing it. Like, (laughs) there's no way I'm doing it. I literally remember leaving the dishes in the sink. My mother would yell at me, like, do the dishes. And I would leave them in the sink until she left the room. And when she left the room, I'd go do them, right? Because I really wanted to be like, no, this is my decision. And I think most parents have to realize that about their kids. It's just sometimes let them make their own decisions. You just have to guide it. It's funny, uh, we were going to do this interview at the Health Optimization Summit in London and we had a, a time zone mishap. So on that trip, uh, this was a couple months ago from when we were recording this, uh, in Europe, they don't spray glyphosate on their wheat 
and I, I handle that wheat much better. It's still not good for me. I know it very well. My kids are gluten-free, and I've just told them, look, don't eat that. It's not good for you. Look, there's all sorts of reasons not to do it. So they got a little bit dogmatic about it, and I don't want my kids to be dogmatic or judging or whatever else. So I said, all right, kids, we're going to go have a croissant. And it, you should have seen them. Their, their jaws dropped. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, let's go do it. And and they're like, you're joking, right? No, really. And this is the first time, or maybe the second time I've had wheat in the last 15 years. The other time was also in uh, in Europe, where uh, a guy said, "This is uh, this is baklava my grandmother made." I'm like, "I'll take two. Like, why not? Right? Um, the, I have enough resilience to handle that." Right. So the kids are freaking out, and they ate it. I'm like, well, that was really good. And then the next day. My daughter handles that stuff much better. Uh, she said, I want to have another one. I'm like, all right, fine. And my son says, I don't want one. He's like, I, I actually was itching all night last night and I don't want it. But it was their choice. And I just wish more parents would do that. Show your kids how good they can feel and then let them wreck it. Because it's amazing. Kids learn to walk because every time they fall over, it hurts. So then they don't fall over anymore. And that's how we gain an erect posture. Right. Same thing as nutritionally. And Tony Robbins has got the best, uh, I mean, if you heard his, his example, how his mother told him not to drink, was he always wanted a beer. So she's like, okay, you can have a beer, sit down, but I'm going to give you six pack. You got to drink them all. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so he ended up puking his face off and hasn't touched a drink ever since. That's ultimately what you're doing, right? Is you're like, hey, you can feel really good. But, and I haven't been my kids, obviously, you know, force feed themselves junk food. But ultimately, that, that's, you know, a great way to learn. It's like you self-regulate. And if you feel terrible on this, just point it out as a parent. I did I literally did it this week with my daughter flying into Toronto. She asked if she could have a croissant, ironically. And I go, sure, if that's what you want, eat it. And, uh, you know, we're on the airplane coming in. <laughs> she goes, Daddy, my tummy hurts. I'm like, I, I told you, sweetheart. Like, <laughs> it's going to happen. And, and now I'm, I, she may eat it again, but again, she probably eats it once a year. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and it, to treat ourselves under that same thing, uh, where I, I tell people when they're first going on the Bulletproof Diet in the book, I mean, this is now, because it was published in 2014. Uh, so I, I just say, look, do two weeks of eating the way I'm proposing here. You're all in the green zone on the roadmap. Right. And when you do that, afterwards, eat the cheesecake, eat the nachos, drink the beer, everything bad, and just wake up the next morning and see what it's like. And look at it, your swollen face. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, okay, now you know, because I think a lot of us lost that. But as a bodybuilder, all bodybuilders know this is going to make me look good, but you were never eating to feel good, right? Most of the people I've talked to, like, they felt like absolute garbage when they were doing that. Yeah, and that was one of the big turns, too, is, you know, the bigger I got, the worse I felt. Even the leaner I got, the worse I felt. Yeah. Like, I, you know, walking on stage at 4% body fat, you feel terrible. And, you know, people don't really realize that. You're walking on stage, and it's really hard to do that. And so you create a negative association after, after a while. Um, but, yeah, it just wasn't a – I love bodybuilding, and I think bodybuilding has so much value for so many people done for the right reasons in the right context. And I don't think it's to, you know, obviously to the level that I took it to is necessary, but I think empowering yourself with the knowledge and the ability to do anything can build confidence daily, right? Dis bodybuilding took discipline. It took focus. It, it built character, it built confidence. And I think anything that does that for people is extremely valuable because when our life is so easy, it's so curated, right? As human beings right now, when else do you allow your body, or again, any athletic endeavor, I guess, is anywhere where you can intentionally subject yourself to challenge and discipline uh, is extremely important, especially, well, I was saying, especially young people, but really anybody. And that's what bodybuilding did for me. And, and I think it can do for so many people, which is why I continue to be an advocate in just a different way, right? Is, is you know, set a, set a goal, set a plan and prove to yourself because nobody else matters, but prove to yourself that you can do it. Um, because you can, and that's really the message of what I what I deliver in my business. When I was creating the the biohacking movement, and I I chose not to trademark or copyright the name biohacking. It's because I I wanted a name to to pull together this community of people, and and I consider bodybuilders to be some of the original biohackers. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about people who are saying. I'm going to make my body do what I want it to do and I'll find every tool out there. And if I have to inject this or I have to hang upside down from this or whatever, I don't care. I'm going to do it. It was such a, a rebellious, disruptive attitude and it was in your face against medicine. So I, I've always respected bodybuilding as a discipline because it's a physical embodiment of meditation. 
right? What a meditator, an advanced guru does, I have full control over my mental cognitive processes. I know exactly where my mind's going and my mind will stop when I want to stop. It'll go where I want it to go, right? And and I've gained that level of self-mastery. And physical self-mastery, bodybuilding, deep sea diving, world's fastest runner, uh, all of those things like that, those are manifestations of this ability to make what we will with our life. And and so I I love the way you share your mindset on that from whether it's from food or from anything else, because you said, I'm going to own it. And then you did. It's yeah, pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, and bodybuilding is one of these unique things that's 24 hours a day, right? When you're, when you're aspiring to do something, there's no turning it off. You know, yeah. there's, there's no like, Hey, I played a basketball game today and I can go out and have some food with my buddies. Or if I'm stressed and I'm tired, I can go out and take a day off. Like it doesn't happen. And that's why I think it may be one of the unique, most unique sports that exists. And, and not to put any other sport down, but just bodybuilding, there's no time off. Like you have to sleep tonight. I can't, I can't miss a day. I have to train tomorrow. I have to eat this way. And, or I guess I should say I get to, but if I really want to succeed, it's very um, all in, it's all or nothing. And that in itself is character building. And I hope everyone realizes who's out there aspiring to build a great body that, you know, it's such a great opportunity to develop character. You know, even if walking into a room, you know, you see someone who trains and looks great, they automatically get your respect and your, um, you know, I guess, I guess your admiration. And I think that's powerful. And I think, you know, everyone should realize that every opportunity in life, whether it be training, whether it be, you know, what you're eating is an opportunity to become the greatest version of yourself. And it's always a decision, right? Am I going to choose something that, that my, my, my tomorrow self, my self of tomorrow is going to thank me for, or am I going to choose something that uh, maybe is in some way negative to my body? And if I can choose things that my, my tomorrow version of myself is going to love, then doing myself a justice. And I think that's the big message. Uh, that is a, a an awesome message uh, just to, to share as we wrap up the show. But I got to ask you another question, man. Um, you've, you've talked about your shift from how I look to how I feel and even to how long I'm going to live. And on Muscle Intelligence, your podcast, you talk about longevity a lot these days. How long do you think you're going to live? Well, it seems like all my everyone in my family lives to be at least 100 to 102. So I've got genes all right. backing me up, Dave. So what do you think I can do? Well, that's your floor then, right? Yes. Uh, I figure 102, 104 is like minimum. Okay. I just want to make sure that I can you know, still ride my bike and have great sex when I'm 102. So that's why I'm reading your books. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's think about it. We've got 62 more years till you're 100, right? Yeah. And that's kind of interesting to think about it like that. I've actually yeah. never said that out loud. So it's not that long, is it? Well, let's go back 62 years. Where was I? Uh, no, like let's In the just world? look at look at the state of what we could do, right. what we knew 62 years ago. So that's 1960. 1960. Okay. Very different, wasn't it? Yeah. Very we did have antibiotics for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have much though. It would have been uh, a very different reality. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We had just invented plastic foods, you know, margarine and things like that. Actually, that was invented by Napoleon, but it, it was it was popularized. You know, margarine became healthy in the 60s and 70s, right? But we were, let's see, we were driving cars that had no electronics in them. I have a 1969 Pontiac Bonneville convertible outside. It's amazing. You can see what everything does. And it's entirely mechanistic. Uh, we didn't really have much in the way of epidemiology. Uh, we didn't understand mitochondria. We didn't understand DNA. Uh, we didn't have the ability to share information the way we do. Mm-hmm. This thing, this there's thing, an argument yeah. that that's what's going to kill us, ultimately, uh, right? There, there's there's oh, a flip side of every coin. Oh, but, artificial intelligence is going to... I don't know about artificial intelligence, but, but all the technologies we're exposed to, right? The blue lights, the the EMFs, the you know the curated life, right? Yeah, I'm I'm less worried than you might expect. Yeah, well, you're out here. Not everyone. Yeah, keep in mind, I, I started a <laughs> I started a company that you know very carefully. We have, have patents with my name on them about blocking certain frequencies of light to improve sleep. Um, and this is you know True Dark, the company, the glasses I'm wearing. So these are problems. However, the ability to harness electrons and to share information is overwhelmingly powerful. Like you look behind you, that and this is a, a video thing. So if you're watching the YouTube channel, you'll you'll see this. There's a piece of technology from 1885, which is the world's, it actually won the the world's best filing system from 140 years ago. And now on your phone, you have access to more information than the president of the United States had, right? This is in your lifetime, okay? This this is the most powerful guy arguably in the world. 
with armies of research scientists around the country could not access what you can access for free in your pocket. And that is why the net balance of are EMFs bad for you? Of course they're bad for you, right? They can also EMFs be good for you? Yeah, I have a machine right over there, something from Upgrade Labs that uses EMFs to drive bone density, right? So they're not good or bad. They're simply tools that can be applied for good or for bad. And we have the ability to identify challenges and overcome those. That's what we've always done. So I, I look at, at the benefits versus the risks. Uh, we really need to fix our lighting so it's compatible with our circadian biology. I have a company whose mission is to do that. There are others who are working on it as well. And by the time 25, 30 years from now, our streetlights at night, they'll be red because we realize that we're destroying the insect population of the planet that we needed with our bright lights. Oh, and we're ruining our sleep and increasing depression and all sorts of stuff. We'll fix it. Like, it'll be okay. It's just a matter of having a long enough lens. So I, I just remind people, and you specifically, go back to how little we knew, how little control we had, the barbarism of medicine back then. Uh, I, I look at the knee surgery that I had just you know 30 years ago. Oh my God, was that 30 years? No. Yeah, almost. Uh, and it, it was it was incredibly, incredibly barbaric. And now they can go in and people are walking the next day. So we're continuing to improve and improve and improve. And the rate of improvement is going up and up and up. That's why when I look at what's it going to look like for you, as long as we don't destroy our topsoil, and we're right now over the next five years, everyone is starting to fix that. We'll fix the oceans. We'll start incinerating plastic instead of trying to somehow put it in landfills where it will never break down and we'll clean the smoke as it comes out. All of this is fixable, getting fixed and the world's getting more educated. We're about to add several more billion people to the internet. So the people who are not educated will become educated for free. So all of this is happening in the next 62 years for you to live as old as your grandfather. If that can't give you another 40 years, it's because either a comet hit the planet or a truck hit you. Right. Yeah, I don't disagree, man. And I, I, you know, rather than focusing on how long, I'm just focusing on how well. And yeah. I can't, I can't control if I, you know, get hit by lightning tomorrow or whatever, drop a dumbbell on my head, right? Um, but I can certainly control this moment, and there I can go. control, um, you know, being present with my family, with myself, and and with my loved ones, and with anyone I meet. And that's really my focus. Is you know, rather than again, you know, I want to optimize every minute of my life, both physically and mentally. So that I can live to be 180, and, and you and I can be neighbors, and and you know share our, our biodynamic vegetables and organic gardens and animals and stuff. I'll trade you some broccoli for some cauliflower. Done. <laughs> I'm more of a broccoli guy, anyways. <laughs> nice. Uh, you've been listening to a podcast, Bulletproof Radio, with Ben Pakulski, and look at his podcast, Muscle Intelligence, BenPakulski.com. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming up to my house on Vancouver Island. I appreciate you. Dave, likewise, beautiful place. You've done an amazing job. And Dave is truthfully a man of his word, living an authentic life. So it's it's truly an honor. And as I said, when we started, I'm a fan. Thanks, man. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.